We are here for the main event, and let me tell you a little bit about Richard Rothstein. He's a senior fellow at the Haas Institute at the University of California, Berkeley, and a distinguished fellow of the Economic Policy Institute, where he works on policy issues regarding education and race, and uh, as a senior fellow at the Thurgood Marshall Institute of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Rothstein was a senior fellow at the Chief Justice Earl Warren Institute of Law and Social Policy at Berkeley's Law School until that institute closed at the end of 2015. He is, of course, the author of The Color of Law, which has been heralded as masterful by the Washington Post, essential by Slate Magazine, and virtually indispensable by the Chicago Daily Observer. The Color of Law has been said to be the most forceful argument ever published on how federal, state, and local governments gave rise to and reinforced neighborhood segregation. It pervasively debunks many contemporary myths about racial discrimination and has transformed our contemporary understanding of 20th century urban history. So we are very fortunate to have him here tonight. And without further ado, would you please welcome me in giving a warm Harrisburg welcome to Richard Rothstein. Thank you very much, Eric. Uh, you know, when you're an old retired guy like I am, you accumulate a lot of useless titles. And uh, <laughs> you've just heard a handful of them. Um, thank you all for coming here uh, this evening to engage with me in this conversation. As you all know, um, in the 20th century, we had a civil rights movement. Uh, we resolved uh, as a nation, and most people agreed that we should abolish racial segregation. Civil rights lawyers <coughs> began with law schools, challenging segregation in law schools because they figured that if judges were too dense to understand anything else, they might be able to figure out that you couldn't get a good legal education in a segregated law school. And then they used that precedent to challenge segregation in colleges and universities. And then those victories were used to abolish segregation, as you all know, in uh, legal segregation in elementary and secondary schools with the Brown versus Board of Education decision. The Brown decision gave uh, new impetus to a growing civil rights movement that not only engaged in uh, litigation and legislation, but also in marches and demonstrations, civil disobedience, people lost their lives. And by the end of the 1960s, we'd abolished segregation, not only in law schools and colleges and schools, but in public transportation, uh, public accommodations. Most of you, I hope, remember, or, or uh, don't remember, but read about the Greensboro sit-ins at lunch counters, and uh, you know about Rosa Parks and, and uh, buses. We came to understand as a country that uh, racial segregation was wrong, that it was immoral, that it was harmful not only to blacks but to whites, that it was incompatible with our self-conception as a democratic society. But then we left untouched at the end of the 1960s the biggest segregation of all, which is that every metropolitan area in this country is residentially segregated. How could it be that if we understood 
that residential segregation, or that segregation rather, was wrong and immoral, harmful to both blacks and whites, and incompatible with our self-conception as a democratic society. How could you leave untouched the biggest segregation of all? Every metropolitan area that I've lived in, and I've lived in many of them, had clearly defined areas that were white or almost all white, and clearly defined areas that were black or almost all black. I'm sure many of you have had the same experience, not only here in Harrisburg, but elsewhere you may have lived. It's a puzzle why the civil rights movement folded up its tent and went home leaving this untouched at the end of the 1960s. Partly, of course, it's because it's harder to redress segregation than to abolish segregation in water fountains or lunch counters. If you abolish segregation in water fountains or lunch counters, the next day you can drink from any water fountain or sit in any restaurant. But if we abolish segregation in neighborhoods, the next day things wouldn't look much different. And so what we've done, all of us, and I include myself, all of us, Democrats, Republicans, blacks, whites, liberals, conservatives, northerners, southerners, we've adopted a rationalization, an excuse we give ourselves for not having continued the desegregation efforts uh, that we undertook in the 20th century. Uh, the excuse, the rationalization for not dealing with residential segregation, one, as I say, that all of us have adopted, and I include myself, as I say, and everybody in this room, goes something like this. We tell ourselves that the segregation of law schools or colleges or schools or lunch counters or buses, all that was done by public policy, by law, uh, by ordinance, by regulation. Uh, if the government requires segregation, it's a violation of civil rights. If it's federal government that's doing it, it's a violation of the Fifth Amendment. If the state and local government is doing it, it's a violation of the Fourteenth Amendment. If it's a civil rights violation, we're obligated to do something about it if we're going to take our Constitution seriously. Residential segregation, though, we tell ourselves, that's entirely different. That wasn't done by government law, regulation, ordinance, public policy. That just sort of happened. It happened because, oh, bigoted white homeowners wouldn't sell homes to African Americans. Or maybe it's because actors in the private economy whether real estate agents or banks discriminated and how they either sold homes or, or issued mortgages. Or maybe we tell ourselves it's just because well, blacks and whites like to live with each other of the same race. It's a, a self-selection process. Or maybe we say it's an economic problem. Uh, African Americans on average have lower incomes than whites and so can't typically afford to live in middle-class white neighborhoods. All of these individual personal, perhaps bigoted, private, non-governmental decisions is what's created residential segregation. And we tell ourselves that if it happened by accident, it may be too bad. Not many of us think it's a good thing to have residential segregation. But if it happened by accident, it can only unhappen by accident. It's not our responsibility to do anything about it. And that view has been embraced by the US Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has given a name to this view that we all share, this rationalization. It's a name we all use, that what they say is that we have de facto segregation when it comes to neighborhoods. And de facto segregation is not a constitutional violation, just something that sort of happened. And um, it's not permissible to do anything about it. Well, I spent um, much of my career, before I started accumulating all these useless titles, um, 
studying education policy. I wasn't a, uh, a housing expert. I didn't know much about residential segregation. I spent much of the uh, uh, 1990s and 2000s, actually, uh, writing articles and, and uh, reports uh, challenging the dominant educational policy of the country at the time which argued that the only reason that uh, we had a gap in achievement between, on average, African-American and white children was because teachers had low expectations of black children. And if only we could raise teachers' expectations, make them try harder, the achievement gap would disappear and black and white children would achieve, on average, at the same level. And so we passed a law called the No Child Left Behind Law, which uh, said that if only we tested children more and then held teachers and schools accountable for the test scores and punished them if the test scores didn't rise, the test scores would rise and there'd be no more achievement gap. It was, in my view, a, a foolish policy, uh, completely unfounded in reality or in research, but that was a, it was a bipartisan policy. The, the law was uh, promoted by uh, Republican President George W. Bush and sponsored in the Senate by Ted Kennedy and in the House by the leading liberal Democrat in the House, George Miller. And so I wrote many columns denouncing this policy. Um, and uh, uh, I won't go into too much detail about it because that would be another lecture and you'd have to come back some other time for that. But I'll just give you one example. Um, uh, asthma, uh, urban children, Minority children in particular, living in low-income segregated neighborhoods, have asthma at four times the rate of middle-class white children. If a child has asthma, the child is likely to be up at night, wheezing, maybe sleepless. Um, maybe doesn't come to school that often because asthma is one of the largest single cause of chronic school absenteeism. And I tried to explain in, in my writings that if you had two groups of children who were equal in every respect, uh, same racial composition of the two groups, same social and economic background, same family structure, everything was identical, except one group of children had a higher rate of asthma and so was coming to school sleepier. That group of children would inevitably have lower average achievement. If school makes any difference at all, you have to be wide awake to take advantage of it. And no matter how high teachers' expectations were, you couldn't make children awake who were up at night wheezing. And I went through, in, in my columns and uh, in writings, I, I went through uh, example after example of the kinds of social and economic conditions you, you can trace the same kind of pathway for, whether it was lead poisoning or homelessness or family economic insecurity, unemployment, um, two groups of children and one had a higher rate of parental unemployment than the other, inevitably going to have lower average achievement, even though some children with asthma and some children with unemployed parents are going to achieve at higher levels than typical children without asthma and with stable uh, economic home lives uh, because there's a distribution of outcomes for every human characteristic and they overlap. But on average, these things make a difference. And then, as I thought about this more deeply, it took me a while, I'm a slow learner, um, uh, but I began to realize that what happens if you have a school where every child, or almost every child, is coming to school either with asthma or lead poisoning or um, stress or homelessness, how can that school, no matter how many laws we pass, generate the same average academic achievement that a school with children who come to school well-rested and without uh, poison 
and uh, from uh, stable homes and employed families, how can those the achievements of those two schools be equal? So that's what I was thinking about. And then it suddenly dawned on me, uh, as I say, it took a while, but it dawned on me that uh, the reason that we have so much concentration of schools, we call those segregated schools, where children with these problems are concentrated. The reason we have this is because the neighborhoods in which they're located are segregated. And in fact, as I looked into it, I realized that uh, schools are more segregated now than they have been at any time in the last 45 years. Uh, 45 years ago, a majority of African-American children uh, went to schools that were majority white. Today, it's only about 15%. So we have a, a enormous segregation in schools today, and it's because the neighborhoods in which they're located are segregated. So I began to think a little bit about that maybe neighborhood segregation was an educational problem, uh, not just a residential problem. And that's how I came to this research uh, that led to this book. Uh, in 2007, I read a Supreme Court decision. Uh, the Supreme Court had evaluated a desegregation plan that had been implemented by two school districts, uh, the District of Seattle, Washington, and Louisville, Kentucky. Both of them had a choice plan in which parents could choose the school in which uh, their children would attend within the district, but if the choice was going to exacerbate segregation, the districts were concerned about the same kinds of things I'd been thinking about. If the choice was going to exacerbate segregation, that choice wouldn't be favored in favor of a, the choice of a, a child who would not exacerbate it. So if you had a school where there was one place left and both a black and a white child applied for that last remaining place, the, the black child would be given some preference. Not that one child was going to desegregate a school, but that was their, the direction they wanted to move. And it was a trivial, trivial program. I mean, how many times do you have one place left in the school when both a black and a white child apply for it? But nonetheless, the Supreme Court denounced the program, said it was unconstitutional, a violation of the Constitution to implement a program like that. Chief Justice John Roberts wrote the, the controlling opinion. He explained that the schools in Louisville and Seattle were segregated because the neighborhoods in which they're located were segregated. I thought that was a pretty wise observation on the Chief Justice's part. In fact, why the schools in those cities are segregated? And then he went on to explain the schools in Louisville and Seattle are segregated because the neighborhoods in which they're located are segregated. And the neighborhoods are segregated de facto for all the reasons I just described. And he said if government wasn't, didn't create this segregation, if it just happened because of private bigotry or private activity or self-selection uh, or economic differences, it was impermissible to do anything about it. Well, I read this decision and remembered having some years before read about something that happened in Louisville, Kentucky, one of the districts that the decision uh, reviewed. And um, in Louisville, Kentucky, there was a white homeowner in a single-family home in a suburb called Shively. Uh, he had an African-American friend living in the center city of Louisville in a rented apartment. Uh, the African-American friend was a decorated Navy veteran, middle-class guy with a wife and daughter, had a good job, wanted to move to a single-family home. Nobody would sell him one. So the white homeowner in the suburb of Shively bought another home in that suburb and resold it to his African-American friend. And when the African-American friend moved in, a, a white mob surrounded the home, protected by the police. Uh, they threw rocks through the windows. Uh, despite the police presence, they somehow couldn't identify a single perpetrator. 
the mob firebombed and dynamited the home, and the police couldn't identify still a single perpetrator. Nobody was arrested except for the white homeowner who had sold the home to the African-American. He was arrested, tried, convicted, and jailed with a 15-year sentence for sedition for having sold a home to a uh, African-American in a white neighborhood. And I said to myself, this doesn't sound to me much like de facto segregation. If the entire police criminal justice system uh, prisons are being used to enforce racial boundaries. And so I began to look into it further. I discovered, and I'm not exaggerating, uh, I, I use these uh, words deliberately, there were thousands of cases of mob violence perpetrated by the police that drove African Americans out of white neighborhoods in the mid-20th century. Every one of them was a 14th Amendment violation. There was nothing, no de facto segregation about it, um, as long as the police were protecting the, the, the bombers. Uh, and then um, further, as I looked into it even more deeply, I realized that it wasn't just the use of the police and the courts and the prosecutors to enforce racial boundaries, but that there were many, many policies of the federal, state, and local governments that were designed with explicit racial intent to ensure that African Americans and whites could not live near one another in any metropolitan area in this country. So in the few minutes that I have this evening, I want to describe to you some of the policies uh, that uh, the federal government followed. There were many others at the state and local level, like uh, the use of the police and courts. Some of the policies that the federal government followed to um, ensure racial segregation, uh, demolishing the myth of de facto segregation. If, if I'm right about this, and uh, at this point I can uh, say confidently that I am right, because the book has been out uh, now for two years, almost, and not a single fact has been challenged by any historian, not a single fact that I report. So, well, <laughs> yeah. um, I'm saying that only because the, the facts are not in dispute. What's in dispute is what we should do about it, and I'll come to that later. But I don't want anybody to think that the facts are in dispute. The first federal policy I want to describe is public housing. Uh, another thing we have great mix misconceptions about, all of us think we know what public housing is. Uh, we think it's a place that poor people live. A place with uh, lots of single mothers with children, lots of um, young men without jobs in the formal economy, um, maybe a lot of interactions with the police, sometimes leading to tragedy, uh, buildings that are deteriorated, uh, dirt instead of grass. That's our image of public housing. That's not how public housing began in this country. The first civilian public housing in this country was built in the New Deal by the Roosevelt Administration, by the Public Works Administration in 1933 during the Depression. Poor people weren't permitted into public housing. It was not for poor people. Uh, you couldn't get into public housing unless you could pay the full cost of the housing and your rent. The government didn't have the money to put out except uh, for the construction costs, which is going to recoup in the rent. Government didn't have money to subsidize people for their housing. The public housing was built because um, during the Depression, there were lots of stable working families who couldn't find housing because no housing was being built. Uh, we know there was a lot of unemployment in the Depression. 25% of the workforce was unemployed. Public housing was for the 75% who had stable employment histories and good jobs. And everywhere at the Public Housing, Public Works Administration built this housing, it segregated it, creating separate projects for African Americans and for whites, frequently, frequently creating segregation in communities that had previously been integrated. Uh, that may also uh, surprise you. 
but in the mid early 20th century, we had much more urban integration than we have today. Um, not every place was integrated. There were certainly places that were segregated, uh, but we had much more uh, integration in housing than we have today, even in the South. The South may have segregated its water fountains and schools and lunch counters, but it had integrated neighborhoods, all for the simple reason that we were a manufacturing economy. And plants, factories, had to be located either near a deep-water port or a railroad terminal. That's how they got their parts and shipped their final products. And um, if uh, you had a factory district that employed you know, Irish and Italian and Jewish and rural migrants and African-American workers, they all live in broadly the same neighborhoods because they had to walk to work. They didn't have automobiles. And so we had many integrated neighborhoods in the country uh, at that time. We'd be stunned if we were transported back to that period to see what urban neighborhoods looked like. Uh, well, we're in a bookstore. Um, maybe if you don't haven't already read it, you should pick up a copy of Langston Hughes' autobiography, uh, The Big C. Uh, Langston Hughes, the great African-American poet, novelist, playwright. Um, is that a good pitch, by the way, for a book? Yeah, yeah okay, yeah, all right, good, yeah. The Big C, it's called. In his autobiography, Langston Hughes describes how he grew up in an integrated downtown Cleveland neighborhood. That's not the way we think of downtown Cleveland today. He said, when he went to high school, his best friend was Polish. He dated a Jewish girl. This was his experience uh, living in downtown Cleveland in the early 20th century. The Public Works Administration in the 1930s demolished housing in that neighborhood to build two separate projects, one for whites, one for African Americans, creating segregation where it hadn't previously existed. And with that and other projects uh, in the Cleveland metropolitan area, created, reinforced, and made more permanent than it ever could have been a pattern of segregation. And this happened everywhere in the country that the Public Works Administration um, built housing. Um, in, in my book, The Color of Law, I like to uh, pick on uh, self-satisfied smug places that think they're better than you are. Uh, places, for example, like Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, the area between Harvard and MIT is the Central Square neighborhood. Maybe some of you are familiar with it. Central Square neighborhood in the 1930s was about half black and half white. It was an integrated neighborhood. Public Works Administration built two separate projects, one for blacks, one for whites in the Central Square neighborhood, and with that and other projects in the Boston area, created a pattern of segregation that otherwise would never have developed with such strength. During World War II, uh, the process intensified of government creation of segregation. Hundreds of thousands of workers flocked to centers of war production during the war to take jobs in war industries. Jobs had been scarce in the Depression. People migrated to work in war plants and they frequently overwhelmed the communities where the war plants were located, and um, the government had to find housing for these workers if it wanted the ships and the tanks and the jeeps and the aircraft to uh, be produced. And so it did. Uh, the government everywhere built segregated housing for war workers who working, were working in the same war plants, uh, creating patterns of segregation, in this case, in places that had never even had substantial African-American populations before the war. So no claim can be made that they were building on previous informal patterns. In particular, the West Coast, uh, those of you who know uh, American history, urban history, will know that uh, historians divide up the migration of African Americans from the South to the rest of the country into two great migrations. Uh, the first great migration took place around World War I, also uh, spurred by uh, war plants, but there was very little 
uh, migration, or not really none at all, in, in World War I to the West Coast. That was how Detroit and Chicago and, and urban areas like that uh, in, in the West and Midwest uh, got black populations. The West Coast didn't have any. There were a few African Americans living in the West Coast. Uh, some were living uh, in an integrated neighborhood of Oakland, California, because that was the terminus of the Intercontinental Railroad. And um, uh, the Pullman Car Company would only hire African Americans as porters. Uh, and so the porters had to live in the white neighborhood surrounding the, the, the railroad terminal. It was an integrated neighborhood. But aside from those, very few African Americans on the West Coast. And in my book, I focus in particular on a community that's a suburb of Berkeley called Richmond. Um, there were no shipbuilding going on in Richmond before the war. By the end of the war, there were five uh, shipbuilding um, uh, facilities employing 100,000 migrant workers. Uh, Richmond itself was a small community of about 20,000, all white, with the exception of a few African-Americans who were working as domestics in white family homes. Um, the government had to build housing for this 100,000 influx, and of course they brought their families, probably 300,000 people, and so it did in Richmond and in Berkeley and in Oakland uh, to service the shipyards. It built segregated housing for workers who were working together in the shipyards, uh, so housing for the African Americans along the railroad tracks in the industrial area. It was shoddy housing because the city of Richmond announced that any African Americans who came to Richmond during the war would have to leave at the end of the war but the white workers were welcome to stay, and so the white housing was built in a more stable fashion uh, further inland. After the war, there was still an enormous housing shortage. Um, very little housing was built uh, in the Depression, except for those public projects that I mentioned. Uh, during World War II, uh, it was actually against the law to use construction materials for civilian purposes unless it was for war workers, and then as you probably know, uh, millions of returning war veterans were coming home needing housing, and uh, no housing was available for them. An enormous housing crisis, much like we have today. Uh, people doubled, tripled up in, with relatives, uh, living in Quonset huts, uh, some in open fields. There was an enormous national housing crisis. President Truman, who succeeded Roosevelt, had to address this housing crisis. He proposed uh, in Congress a, a law to vastly expand the national public housing program. And again, remember, this was a, a segregated program for working families who had jobs and could pay the full cost of their rent. He proposed this program. Conservatives in Congress wanted to defeat Truman's 1949 Housing Act. They wanted to defeat it not for racial reasons, because it was always segregated. That's not what they objected to. It's not that they didn't like poor people. Poor people, for the most part, weren't permitted into public housing. You had to be able to pay your rent. They wanted to defeat it because they thought it was socialistic and the government shouldn't be building housing, even though the private sector wasn't doing anything to address the housing shortage. And so they came up with a device that some of you um, probably have heard of. It's called a poison pill strategy uh, that opponents of the bill used to uh, defeat uh, something they object to. And a poison pill strategy is uh, an attempt by opponents of a bill to put forward an amendment we call it the poison pill amendment uh, that they think they can get a majority to support and uh, when the amendment is adopted by that majority and then the full bill comes up before congress with this amendment a different majority because of the amendment finds the bill unpalatable 
And so the conservatives proposed an amendment to the 1949 Housing Act. From now on, the amendments say, no more segregation in public housing. Public housing has to be operating on a non-discriminatory basis. They assumed, they planned to vote for it. It was a cynical proposal. They didn't want public housing at all. But they said, thought they would vote for it. They thought they could recruit some northern liberal Democrats to vote with them in favor of desegregation of public housing. That would create a majority. And then when the full bill came up before the floor of Congress, the conservatives would flip and vote against the final bill. They would be joined by southern Democrats. That would create a new majority. And the bill would go down to defeat. So northern Democrats uh, had a decision to make. Were they going to support the integration amendment and not address the housing crisis because no housing would be built? Or were they going to oppose the integration amendment and continue public housing in a vastly expanded form as a segregated program? Uh, I tell you this story, it's probably the most important story I'm going to tell you this evening because we face the same dilemma today. Um, we have a housing shortage. We have to decide whether to build it uh, on a segregated basis or sometimes not at all. Um, but in any event, the liberals decided um, to um, oppose the integration amendment. And they were led uh, by Mr. Civil Rights in the United States Senate, a fellow whose name you may remember, Hubert Humphrey. Uh, the other leader of the liberals at that time was another um, uh, senator uh, from Illinois, uh, Paul Douglas. Um, Douglas got up on the floor of the Senate and made a speech along the following lines. He said, I want to say to my Negro friends that you'll be better off if the integration amendment is defeated and you get the housing that you need than if the integration amendment is passed and you get no housing at all. It was a difficult decision. I'm not uh, uh, saying that Douglas didn't face a terrible dilemma about whether to make this devil's bargain that he was proposing. Uh, there was an enormous housing crisis that needed to be addressed. But in retrospect, I don't think we were better off by the decision uh, that he made. And the, the integration amendment was defeated. Uh, the uh, Public Housing Act of 1949 was passed as a continued segregated program. The federal government used that vote in Congress as its rationalization for continuing to segregate all federal housing programs, not just public housing, for the next 15 years. We reinforce segregation to such an enormous extent that it determines the, the patterns of segregation in part that we have today. It, um, it's short-term benefits. Well, we got some housing built for people who needed it. It's long-term costs. We're in the achievement gap that I described before by concentrating the most disadvantaged children in single schools. It's the health disparities between African-Americans and whites. African-Americans have shorter life expectancies and greater rates of heart disease because they live in more polluted neighborhoods. Uh, it's responsible in large part for the outrageous criminal justice system that incarcerates such a large proportion of African-American young men, which it could not do if we were not concentrating them in single disadvantaged neighborhoods without access to jobs and opportunity. And I'd say that the, the devil's bargain that Douglas made even um, predicts in large part, if not entirely, the dangerous racial polarization that we have in our politics today. Uh, because it's inconceivable to me how we can ever develop, how we can ever develop the common national identity that is essential if we're going to preserve this democracy if so many African Americans and whites live so far from each other they have no ability to understand each other's uh, life experiences 
or um, uh, empathize with each other. So those are the long-term costs for this short-term benefit, and today we face the same dilemma. Uh, I was telling some people at the dinner a little while ago that the biggest uh, uh, housing program that we have now is called the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit. It's a program of the federal government that subsidizes developers to build housing for low-income families. It's almost always placed in low-income segregated neighborhoods, reinforcing segregation, simply because that's the only way to get the housing built. If you try to build it in high-opportunity communities, you have to hold 100 community meetings, explain to people why you're building, bringing black and brown children into their neighborhood. Um, the land is cheaper there. You can put up a sign in the window and lots of uh, low-income people will walk by seeing an apartment for rent. So that's the choice we, we have to make today. And I think it has the same long-term costs uh, uh, that we get for these short-term but real benefits in housing. Well, I said I would tell you about two federal programs. Um, let me, uh, uh, I'm running out of time, so let me tell you about a second one. Uh, very soon after all these segregated projects were built, um, uh, as a result of the 1949 Housing Act. A development occurred that was quite surprising to um, housing policymakers. Uh, the white projects developed large numbers of vacancies. The black projects had long waiting lists. Pretty soon the situation became so extreme that um, even the most bigoted public housing official couldn't justify a situation where in his city you had some projects that were half empty and others with long waiting lists. So soon, all the projects were opened up to African Americans. They became increasingly African American. Public housing came to be identified as an Afri African American institution. At about the same time, that industry that I was talking to you about before, that had to be located near railroad terminals and deep water ports, left the cities and moved to the suburbs because the highways were being built and they could get their parts and ship their final products by truck. So the jobs, that urban families had been depending on uh, left. And if the urban families were still in public housing or in the private market, African-American families, they became poorer and poorer. They could no longer pay the rent for public housing. And the government started to subsidize it. Once the government started to subsidize it, it started to deteriorate because they didn't invest in it. They didn't maintain it. And we got the kind of public housing that we identify with public housing today. But it's important to remember that that's not how public housing began. It's not how it needs to be. Um, but I want to discuss or describe briefly to you why all those vacancies occurred in the white projects and not in the black ones. These were all returning war veterans. They had jobs in the post-war economy. Uh, why were whites leaving and blacks staying? And that was because of another federal program that was explicitly on a racial basis designed to suburbanize the entire white population into single-family homes like that suburb of Shively in Louisville uh, in all white suburbs. It was an explicit racial policy. You're familiar with all the suburbs that were created. The most famous of them is probably Levittown, east of New York City. Uh, some of you may remember um, hearing the song that Pete Seeger used to sing about little boxes on a hillside made of ticky-tacky, and they all look the same. Levittown was 17,000 homes. This development of little boxes was about 15,000 south of San Francisco. Uh, Los Angeles became the symbol of suburbanization in the 1950s. Uh, places like Panorama City, you've heard of, or uh, Lakewood. All of these were federally sponsored uh, suburbs uh, created for whites only on an explicitly racial basis to get whites out of cities into these single-family homes. 
at the time, we were not a suburban country. We became suburbanized as a result of this program. Nobody had any idea whether anybody would want to move to those kinds of suburbs. Who would want to move out of the city into a single-family home in a place like Levittown or, or uh, uh, Daly City, where the little boxes were? It was a purely speculative venture to build these suburbs. No bank would be crazy enough to lend Levitt or Henry Dolger, who was the builder of the little boxes, or any of the others, uh, crazy enough to lend these developers the money to build such a speculative uh, development that nobody might ever want to live in. Uh, the only way that these developers, Levitt and Dolger and all the others, there were hundreds and hundreds of these developments in every metropolitan area of the country, not all as large as Levittown, but they suburbanized the country. The only way they could build them was by going to the Federal Housing Administration, submitting their plans for the development. The plans were quite detailed, the construction materials that would be used, the layout of the streets and so forth, and an explicit commitment never to sell a home to an African American. If they made the commitment, uh, the federal government would guarantee their bank loans. If the federal government even required that these developments place a clause in the deed of every home prohibiting resale to African Americans or rental to African Americans. This was a federal policy. It was not the action of rogue bureaucrats. It was written in the policy manual that the federal government issued to appraisers all over the country whose job it was to evaluate the applications of developers uh, to build these suburbs. The manual said that you couldn't guarantee a federal, uh, issue a federal guarantee for a loan uh, to build a, an integrated suburb. It went so far as to say you couldn't even um, guarantee a loan for a development that was all white, but that might be located near where African Americans were living because it would run, in the words of the, the manual, the risk of infiltration by inharmonious racial groups. That's what the federal manual said. And where did this notion of de facto segregation come from? It's utter nonsense. This was a federal policy. And together, these two federal policies, uh, uh, the FHA's policy to move whites into all white suburbs, uh, government housing programs to con that concentrated African Americans and segregated projects are two of the main parts, They're not the only ones. As I say, there's also the use of the police and the prosecutors and many others that I describe in my book that uh, I don't have time to go into now. But this was a system of interlocking federal, state, and local policies, racially based, that created the unconstitutional segregation that we have today that we have an obligation to end. Let me describe, finally, one last consequence of these policies. Uh, those homes in places like Levittown or Daly City or Panorama City, they sold in the mid-20th century for about eight, nine, ten thousand $10,000. Inexpensive homes, 750 square feet, modest working class homes. In today's money, that's about $100,000. The white families who moved into those homes, especially if they were veterans, made no down payment. Their monthly housing costs were less in public house in, in this, these single-family homes than it had been for rent in public housing. Um, those homes gained over the next couple of generations in value, in worth. Those hundred thousand dollar homes are now worth what, three hundred, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars, maybe more, depending on the area of the country they're located in. The white families who who bought these homes with federal guarantees, with FHA or VA mortgages uh, gained over the next few generations. Wealth from the appreciation and the equity of their homes. Um, they used that wealth to send their children to college, to weather emergencies, whether unemployment or uh, 
perhaps medical, they financed their own retirements with it, and they bequeathed wealth to their children who then had down payments for their own homes. African Americans who were prohibited by federal policy from participating in this wealth generating exercise continued to live for the most part in rented apartments in urban areas and gained no such wealth. Today, African American incomes are about 60%, 60% of white incomes. That's a disparity. That would be a third lecture I'd have to give to explain the origins of that. I won't bore you with it tonight, but uh, just 60%. You'd think that a 60% income ratio would translate into something like a 60% wealth ratio. Maybe not exactly, but roughly. But in fact, while African-American incomes are 60% of white incomes, African-American wealth is only 10% of white wealth on average. And that enormous disparity between a 60% income ratio and a 10% wealth ratio is entirely attributable to unconstitutional federal housing policy that was practiced in the mid-20th century. That's a blatant violation of our Constitution that we, all of us, as American citizens, have an obligation to do something about. The solutions to this are easy. They're easy to develop. You know, policymakers know what all the solutions are, and if they don't, I can tell them. And so can anybody else at this point. I didn't used to be a housing expert, but you know, the solutions are really easy. Um, and, I, and maybe in the question and answer period, uh, uh, um, I can tell you about some of them. But what's hard is developing the political will to do them. Uh, and uh, it, it's a mistake, in my view, to focus on the details of the policies uh, at this point. What we need is a new civil rights movement uh, that's going to be as energetic <laughs> that's going to be as energetic and as determined as the civil rights movement was in the mid-20th century to uh, eliminate segregation in what, you'll forgive me, were more trivial forms than the residential segregation we have today. Um, as a result, uh, we are now having a lot uh, more conversation in this country about race and about the legacies of slavery, of which this is one. Um, not only as a result of, of my book, but uh, books by uh, uh, Michelle Alexander, New Jim Crow, or, or Matthew Desmond, uh, Evicted. I assume you stock all of these books? Yeah, good, okay. Uh, um, um, Brian Stevenson's book, Just Mercy, uh, the works of... Um, uh, Pulitzer Prize winner James Foreman Jr.'s book, uh, uh, Locking Up Our Own, uh, uh, ta Coates' books. We're having this national conversation. It needs to go beyond that. Um, as a result of this national conversation, though, a, a group of national civil rights leaders are coming together to create a new uh, national committee to redress segregation in housing, to try to pick up where the civil rights movement left off. Uh, they haven't announced anything yet, I hope they will in the next year or so. Um, if anybody is interested in participating in this um, new civil rights movement, uh, you can uh, let me know or give me an email address and I'll put you on the list to be notified when it happens. But like I say, the policies are easy. What's hard is uh, the new civil rights movement that needs to uh, demand those policies. So we have a de jure system of segregation, not a de facto one. It's up to us to eliminate it, and uh, I thank you for your attention.
we're now going to open it up to questions. So if you have a question, just please raise your hand. And we're going to start in this general vicinity and then kind of go that way. So in this area, does anyone have a question? Yes. Thank you so much for writing this book. Um, I think it is a modern adjunct to um, Leon Higginbotham's book on the matter of color, which talks about how color was created in this country, and you've taken it and shown how it, how it translates into policy. Um, I'm wondering what advice you give to specifically uh, white privileged folk on how to deal with gentrification and how to help um, small cities like ours where people believe that gentrification only happens in big cities and that it isn't happening here, and I would argue that it is, what can you tell me as ways that I can talk with other people about this? Okay. Um, I'm going to start in answering your question by, by making a comment first about the way you introduced it. And I want to say I reject the concept of white privilege. The white families, returning war veterans that came back from World War II who were given federally guaranteed mortgages, for example, to buy homes, so they were exercising a right that they should have had. The problem is not they weren't privileged. The problem is that African Americans were denied that right. And I think it's a mistake to, um, that's number one. Number two is, uh, I don't believe in inherited guilt. And uh, no, none of you in this room, I assume, participated in creating these policies. So I think it's not productive uh, to um, develop this concept of white privilege. What's important to understand is that we have economic rights in this country that African Americans were outrageously denied to partake in, and that whites legitimately partook in it. I wouldn't say that we shouldn't have had a mortgage program uh, that enabled families to find housing. We should have. I'm not going to say that we shouldn't have had uh, housing programs at the federal level. We should have. But everybody should have been able to take advantage of it. Okay, gentrification. Um, forgive me that, that uh, prelude, but I, I did want to react to that. Um, I said before that the policies are easy to develop, and we know what to do uh, in order to prevent gentrification from doing as it's doing in so many places, and it could do here in Harrisburg as well if it continues, of simply transforming a low-income segregated minority neighborhood into a high-income uh, segregated affluent neighborhood, uh, white neighborhood. Um, that's what's happening in most places of the country. but. Um, it's not necessary. We can't prevent gentrification. In fact, gentrification could be a good thing if it was controlled. It would turn a low-income, disadvantaged neighborhood that produces health disparities and achievement gaps into an integrated place that had families of all income levels and both races. That's what it could do. What are the policies that we should be implementing? Well, on the one hand, we should preserve the right of people who lived in those neighborhoods to continue living there with, for example, rent control programs, with limits on condominium conversions, with inclusionary zoning programs that require new construction of uh, multiple unit dwellings to have a share that's affordable 
presumably for existing residents, but for other low-income families as well. Um, and uh, another program we should have, which is even probably more critical, I would guess, in a place like Harrisburg uh, than in some of the big cities, and that's a freeze on property taxes for existing homeowners. Um, we should have statewide freezes on property taxes for existing homeowners so that families who've owned their homes for many years aren't forced out because they can't pay the property taxes as the neighborhood appreciates in value. Um, California has a freeze on property taxes. You may have heard about it. It's Prop 13. Um, it's a disaster. Uh, the reason it's been a disaster is because if you freeze property taxes on existing homeowners, you slash the revenue that schools and libraries and other public facilities depend upon. And California schools, once a, a, a freeze on property taxes was implemented, went from being among the best in the country to among the worst. Um, but that's an easy thing to fix. Uh, a property tax freeze should include a provision, which California's doesn't have, that at point of sale, the lost property taxes are recouped and returned to the Treasury. So if you have a family, uh, I don't know in Harrisburg what the numbers are, I'm just making these up, who bought a home you know, 20 years ago for $50,000, and it now sells for $300,000, uh, but they can't afford to pay property taxes on $300,000, they should be paying property taxes on $50,000 for all the time they lived there. But when they sell it for $300,000, the lost property taxes should be returned to the Treasury. And instead of making a $250,000 profit, they only make a $200,000 profit. That's a way to preserve the right of homeowners in uh, existing low-income neighborhoods to stay in their homes. Well, so those are the policies we should be implementing in order to control gentrification so it doesn't force the displacement of everybody who lives in that neighborhood. But inevitably, some people are going to be displaced. I mean, we do have a, a, a private market in this country. If somebody willingly wants to sell property, they can do it. Uh, and if they want to sell it to a developer, uh, they can do it. Uh, there's, there's no, so some people will be displaced. And the other thing we need to be doing is to ensure that people who are displaced have high opportunity places to move to rather than being displaced from newly segregated low-income neighborhoods that are frequently even farther away from jobs and um, amenities uh, than they are now. And that's what's happening all over the country. In how do we do that? Well, that requires a much bigger lift. That requires challenging the exclusionary zoning laws that exist in um, segregated white suburbs, white communities. It requires, for example, modifying the low-income housing tax credit program so that projects, and I think they should be mixed income products, not, not projects, not for uh, low-income families exclusively. We shouldn't be segregating people in single projects, even if they're in, in uh, integrated neighborhoods. Um, we need to modify that program, modify zoning so that those developments can be placed in what are presently all white suburbs. Um, so we need uh, both kinds of policies uh, in the face of gentrification. One is to preserve uh, the right of people to remain through rent control or, or limits on condominium conversions or property tax freezes, and to ensure that people who are displaced have um, high opportunity places to move to. We're not doing any of those policies today, and um, that requires a new civil rights movement that all of you are going to uh, create. Question in the back. Um, about the civil rights, the new civil rights movement that you mentioned, um, 
I do want to point out that we do kind of have that going on right now. We have the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, they're being um, treated like criminals in the news, just like people in the civil rights movement. Uh, my question is, is it going to be led by white people or black people? Because uh, the issue is white people created these policies. This is a white problem to solve. And we do have to stop waiting for brown and black people to demand and beg equality and just do the right thing as the white race and white people in general. Well, I think that um, any civil rights movement has to be bi biracial. It clearly needs black leadership, but it needs to be uh, thoroughly biracial. African Americans uh, cannot solve this problem on their own. They don't have the force. They don't have the political power to do so. Uh, so it requires a biracial movement. It's my, uh, I think at least it should be led and will be led, I, I hope, by um, uh, African Americans, but uh, it's got to be biracial. So far as Black Lives Matter goes, that's part of the national awareness that I was talking about before, but the Black Lives Matter movement is not addressing housing. It's uh, mostly focused on criminal justice issues, which are important, I'm not uh, denying that, but um, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, and it's not an organization, it's a movement, is, um, is not taking on this issue, and I'm not criticizing it for it, it's got important things it is taking on, but uh, somebody needs to be taking on the issue of, of housing segregation. Thank you for a very, I don't feel like standing. Thank you for, I'm sorry, I'll be respectful while standing. I'm just tired. <laughs> I just went to the gym. That's the only reason why I didn't want to stand. Um, thank you for a very, um, a good um, synopsis of what is obviously a very important book. I wanted to point out that as an African-American who grew up in the um, 50s and 60s and 70s, that I come from a culture where every person in my age group or below that and a little bit above that, you know, we all learned what you just said. We needed to know the history of slavery in America and we needed to know why our folks couldn't get jobs or could get certain jobs. And we needed to know why we lived where we lived. So thank you for codifying that. It's very important that you understand though that everyone in this room, black and white and, and Asian and otherwise, understands that we, this is the way it is in America. You know, I am a person who has gotten more radical in my own way because, um, because it's tiresome, candidly, and because you talk about a new civil rights movement, but it tends to be um, a very small window of opportunity, and we have to get better as a society and find a way to not, to not continue to reinforce the notion of a caste system. When I was very young, my father said, there is a caste system in America. I've been very fortunate. I've worked very hard, but I've been also very fortunate. My question to you, I didn't only have a comment, but comments are sometimes necessary. You need to know where people are coming from. Let's be clear about that. My question is, where are they doing it right, in your estimation, in America right now? It's not here. We're not doing all that well. I know that. We have issues, that's okay. We can get better. Where are they doing it right? Is it New Jersey? Is it someplace else? Well, there are many places, states, uh, cities that are taking steps in the right direction. They're small steps. Um, we don't have the kind of national movement that's uh, going to demand stronger steps, but they're small steps and they are models for what could be done ev everywhere and in greater extent. 
just a couple months ago, maybe some of you read about it, the city of Minneapolis um, abolished single-family zoning throughout the city, in large part because the leaders of the city of Minneapolis understood what the racial implications of their single-family zoning program was. There are a number of uh, places where um, largely result of uh, uh, court suits against um, public housing authorities. They've um, gotten settlements which result in, in mobility programs, that is uh, the uh, um, ability of uh, Section 8 voucher holders to move uh, out of um, low-income segregated neighborhoods into integrated communities. Uh, I, I attacked the low-income housing tax credit program uh, before, but uh, some projects are being placed in high-opportunity communities. Not many, but some are, and some um, jurisdictions are doing a better job of balancing uh, the placement of low-income housing in, in low-income um, and uh, higher-opportunity neighborhoods. Um, there are places with rent control, obviously. You know that. Uh, it's not very well enforced, but uh, and, and there, there are a lot of loopholes in it, but there are some places with rent control that uh, help people remain in their communities uh, under pressure of gentrification. Um, you know, I'll mention one, uh, uh, Montgomery County, Maryland, which is a, um, excuse me? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, Montgomery, has, it surrounds Washington, D.C., a very affluent county. Uh, they have an inclusionary zoning requirement that any uh, project in that county have a share of units for moderate income families. Um, I think it's 15% uh, of the units have to be moderate income. And then the Public Housing Authority of Montgomery County purchases one-third of that 15% for its public housing program. So it actually owns 5% uh, uh, of the units in new developments. And uh, so th th those are examples. There are many, many examples like that. Probably the best place, if you're interested, of finding uh, examples of places that are doing things right is the website of the Poverty and Race Research Action Council, P-R-R-A-C dot O-R-G. And um, you can, but these are all small programs that none of them are, are big enough to make a big difference, but they point us in the right direction. Mr. Rothstein, when you look specifically, and it seems like your book concentrates during the period of Jim Crow, is that correct? I'm not saying exclusively, but primarily. Well, the book primarily focuses on the period from the 1930s on when um, the federal government got involved in housing policy. It's primarily Jim Crow. Well, Jim Crow started much earlier. Yeah, than much that. earlier, but that yeah. period still is yeah. around the epicenter yeah. of Jim Crow. Uh, when you look at that period, 1930s, 40s, 50s, and compare that to what we call integration today, uh, is there much difference, really? We tend to generally say, oh, things are much better during integration, but you look at the numbers, you look at housing, you look at uh, the achievement gap, you look at all the quality of life indicators, do you see that much of a difference? Yes, I think I see, there's an, I see an enormous difference. Many things have gotten better, some things have gotten worse. Uh, some things have gotten much worse. Probably what stands out the most in terms of what's gotten much worse is our criminal justice system, which has moved far backward from what it was during the period that we're talking about. But we've also made enormous progress in some areas. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I, I, I guess I, I shouldn't talk too much about what an old man I am, but I told you about the, the, the useless titles you, um, you accumulate at my age. But I will say that my first job in the early 1960s, uh, early to mid-1960s, was as a research associate for the Chicago Urban League. 
and uh, a research assistant. I shouldn't glorify my role. A research assistant for the Chicago Urban League. And uh, my job, uh, one of the jobs I had was to count up uh, the policy-making positions in the city of Chicago's private sector, in the corporate sector of Chicago. And in those days, there was uh, you know, no internet, so all we had was these great big manuals and uh, it listed every corporation in the city and there was a, you know, the name of the purchasing manager and the personnel director. We didn't have human resources people then, the personnel director and uh, you know, any, any policy-making position in the corporate sector of Chicago. I counted up 4,000 positions. Uh, this was probably, uh, finished it probably in 1965. Um, how many, African, uh, Chicago is a city with 35% African-American population. Of those 4,000 positions, uh, how many do you think were held by an African-American in 1965? Take a guess. None, not a single one. Not a single position, even as low as a purchasing manager in any corporation in the city of Chicago was held by an African-American in this heavily African-American, you know, 35% city. You know, I was too young to appreciate the significance of it, but I guess if you told my boss at that time, the research director, you told him in 15 years you couldn't have a corporation in the city of Chicago without a diverse executive suite, he'd said, you're crazy. But you know, we made progress. Um, and I talked before about the gains that the civil rights movement made, whether it's in colleges and universities or in um, you know, public facilities or employment. So I, I, I think it's a mistake to think we've made no progress and uh, it's dangerous because if we think we've made no progress, it's hard to believe that we can make progress now. If we understand that we have made progress and need to do again what we did to make the progress that we made, maybe we can begin to do something about it. So I don't minimize the ways, uh, you know, schools are more segregated, I said before, because of neighborhood segregation. That to me remains the biggest problem that we face. And the wealth gap that I described is directly a result of that r residential segregation. But we've certainly made, made progress in, in many areas. We're a very different kind of country than we were when I was young. And I do remember um, official segregation that we uh, uh, don't have today. So. Um, I'm not certainly not, uh, uh, you know, not not, not dreaming uh, about this. I'm not uh, sugarcoating our history. It's terrible, but we have to understand that it is possible to make change. And uh, if we understand that, then we can maybe believe that it's possible to make more of it. Question in the back. Thank you for your presentation. I wanted to ask, um, in your opinion, what do you feel has been the impact? with regard to your subject when uh, with the American highway system being built and bypasses, how does that impact all of this? Oh, enormously. You know, I, as I said, there were many federal policies and state and local policies. I didn't have a time to mention this evening. One of them was the federal highway system, which was in many cases, and I document this in the book, in many cases explicitly designed to wipe out African-American neighborhoods and move African-Americans farther away from central city districts explicitly with racial purpose. Uh, the, I have quotations from uh, highway officials uh, in the book um, in the mid-20th century uh, uh, bragging about this purpose of the highway system. So yes, um, the, that Federal Housing Administration manual that I talked about that uh, uh, was used to um, uh, uh, guide uh, appraisers in recommending developments for um, uh, uh, 
federal guarantees among its recommendations was that they should uh, uh, build highways to separate white neighborhoods from black ones. And um, I, you know, I'm not familiar. You know, th this is a book about a national story. I, I know a little bit about a lot of places, not a lot about any place, but I do know something about Chicago. And if any of you know Chicago, um, you will uh, understand that it's not simply happenstance that the Dan Ryan Expressway is, uh, was created as a barrier between uh, black and white neighborhoods. And so that was also, that was another policy that played a role. And the other policy that plays a role is, is related to that, and that is uh, our investment in highways um, and disinvestment or lack of investment in the kind of public transportation that would enable African Americans to get the jobs um, uh, so that the, their own resources would improve and their own neighborhoods would improve. So um, it's a twofold problem. We've got one more question in the back. Thank you. Uh, it seemed like uh, in your book, sometimes churches strenuously fought for keeping segregated neighborhoods. Sometimes churches fought strenuously to integrate. Do you have any reflections on that? Um, yes, and, and you know the theme of my book is that this is an unconstitutional system of government action. And with respect to the churches, there were many, many churches, um, uh, Catholic churches in particular, but not only Catholic churches, many churches that led campaigns to, um, for example, circulate restrictive covenants in their communities, the parishes that might have had an Irish congregation or uh, Italian, want to keep their uh, their neighborhood homogenous, and so they led in this respect. My focus in the book is the fact that every one of these churches was getting a tax exemption. And uh, when the federal government, when the IRS issued a tax exemption to an institution that was openly promoting racial segregation, it was violating the Fifth Amendment. It was an unconstitutional action. And you know the thing about this whole history that uh, saddens me so much as it would have been so easy to avoid. All it would have taken was lifting the tax exemption of one or two of these churches, and nationwide it would have stopped. Same thing is true of um, the suburban development. You know, if, if uh, the Federal Housing Administration had told Levitt or any other of these developments that will guarantee your bank loans only if you sell homes on a non-discriminatory basis, they wouldn't have liked it. They were bigots. Levitt was a bigot. He wouldn't have liked it. He claimed that whites wouldn't have bought homes in an integrated neighborhood. I, uh, I would have liked to see him try to prove that. Um, there might have been some bigoted whites who wouldn't have wanted to move into an integrated neighborhood, but the housing shortage was so enormous that for anyone that refused, there were 10 waiting in line to take its place. So it would have taken so little to um, have a different history. And um, yeah. Unfortunately, we are running out of time, so we have time for just one more question. Oh. I could talk about this for three <laughs> years. Hi. Um, Hi. I am an architectural historian, and um, we are required to consider the effects of federal dollars on historic properties older than 50 years of age, evaluate them and see if they're historic. Um, we have determined many places associated with your book to be historic places like Levittown, New Jersey. I was on the staff of the State Historic Preservation Office there when we determined that was a historic district. 
there are many places in Pennsylvania, including Chester, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, that are public housing associated with the histories discussed in your book that are determined historic. And many of the public agencies want to demolish them with federal dollars. And we have to consider the effects of the demolition of those properties and potentially mitigate it and tell the story of those places. How do you think that this story is best told as history that is unsavory and potentially then use that to educate the population about what that means for our society today? Telling ugly history, essentially. Well, I, I don't have a, a you know, I know I've been running at the mouth in response to some of the other questions, but I don't have a long answer to that. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell the story. Put up plaques. Uh, write newspaper. I don't know how you tell the story, but I think you should. And um, you know, it, it should be taught in schools and local schools. You know, one of the things that I'm working on is, is uh, with some groups developing uh, curricula uh, that schools can use because their textbooks all lie about this history. And um, you know, uh, maybe you should go around to schools and, and talk to high school groups. And talk. I, I really don't know specifically how you should do it, but I think what you're proposing to do is a wonderful thing. Can we give a round of applause to Richard Rothstein?